Hi, my name's Owen, and I just want to add my welcome to you today. I'm so glad that you've joined us for this online service. We're going to be continuing our series in the New Testament letter of James. Uh, it was a letter written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, to Christians in the latter half of the first century. We've seen over the last weeks in this series uh, that James's concern in his letter is to help his readers and in turn to help us understand what it looks like in practice, in, in real terms, in day-to-day in -day living to have an active faith in Jesus Christ, to be a Christian. And as we continue and come to these verses today, it won't take you long to notice that there is an unavoidable theme in the verses that we're going to read today. And that theme is prayer. In fact, in just six verses, James talks about prayer no less than seven times. As he comes to the end of this letter, James wants to leave us in no doubt that Christian people are praying people. That if we're to live out the rest of the things that he has written about in this letter, to bring all of our words and actions under the lordship of Christ Jesus, then we will need to be people of prayer. Indeed, the prayerless Christian simply doesn't exist. Martin Luther, the 15th century reformer, in his sermon on John 14, said this. He said, A Christian without prayer is just as impossible as a living person without a pulse. And James, I think, would agree. So let's read together. If you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up. We're in James chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. And if you don't have a Bible, then the words will come up on the screen here. So let's read chapter 5, 13 through to 18. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, seek to to understand and apply these verses to ourselves today. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it's, it's living and active, uh, that it speaks right into our, our hearts, right into our circumstance and situations. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would uh, cause your word to live for us today. Would you uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you help us to understand what you want to speak to us through your word today? 
Lord, and would you help us to allow it to take root in our hearts and to bear fruit for your glory. Amen. Well, as James opens this closing section of his letter, he gets straight to it, right? He says, is anyone among you in trouble? Pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. That's prayers set to music. Is anyone sick? Then call the elders to pray. Anyone struggling with sin and in need of forgiveness? Then confess your sin and pray for one another. There is no time, season, or circumstance in which prayer is not the appropriate response for Christians. And James wants to leave us in no doubt of that fact. So let's dig in and look in more detail at these specific examples he gives. He begins by saying, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Now remember, James is writing to Christians, many of whom were being oppressed and persecuted for their faith. And as he draws near the end of this letter, he encourages them to pray. Now in the light of the rest of his letter, what should we suppose James is encouraging them to pray? Are we to assume that he's encouraging them to pray for release from their difficult circumstance, uh, for, for a change for the, the, the Jews or the Romans who are oppressing them to, to leave them alone? Is that what we assume he's encouraging them to pray? Well, actually, probably not. No. You see, James's encouragement right at the outset of his letter in chapter 1, and, and actually throughout there is this theme of faithful endurance in suffering and difficulty. James here isn't necessarily encouraging us to pray for trouble to go away, but for us to pray that God's will would be done, to pray and ask God to strengthen us and equip us to endure these trials and challenges, that he would enable us to respond well to suffering now, of course, God does sometimes lift us out of difficult situations or, or turn them around. But he also often uses them to grow in us godly character, to teach us to deepen our dependence on him, to, to lean all the more wholly on him. Our prayers don't have to be long or eloquent. They just need to be honest with God. I want to encourage you. As James says, if any among you are in trouble, pray. Bring your situation to God. Declare your trust in him. And know that he hears and he cares. I would encourage you to, to read the Psalms and pray out of those. The Psalms provide an amazingly rich source of prayer material in times of trouble. So however deep your trouble, pray. Give it to God. James continues, is anyone happy? <laughs> Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone happy? Do you know the goodness of God? Have you found life and freedom in him? Have you found in him true and lasting hope? 
Do you know that he saved you from your sins? Well, if you do, (laughs) then respond by pouring out songs of praise, songs of thanks to him. These songs are, are prayers of thanks and love and adoration set to music. That's what James is talking about here. Words that speak of God's goodness and his grace. Sing them out. I can't wait until we're able to gather again and sing songs like this of God's goodness together. To sing and and remind each other in song of his glory and his grace and his kindness towards us. But until we're able to gather and do that, I want to encourage you to sing where you are, to sing out prayers of thanks to God for who he is and what he's done. I want to encourage you to sing around the house, to sing in the car, to sing on your bike. One of the amazing benefits of singing truths about God is that they stick with us. Music makes things memorable. So I want to encourage you. Like James says, if you're happy, sing songs of praise. I want to encourage you, pray Bible truths about God back to him in song. It will do you good. Pray in song when you're happy. And pray when you're in trouble. And, James says, pray when you're ill and get others to pray for you. We read from verse 14, Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Now as we get to this section, it gets less straightforward than those first two. In fact, these are tricky verses. James seems to be saying here that when we're sick, if we follow a particular pattern of things, if we stick to a particular formula, we will be healed. It almost seems to guarantee healing. If we do X, Y, and Z, then we'll be healed. But let's be honest. That's not our experience, is it? And because of that, these can be very painful verses to read. I would guess most of you could think of times where you have prayed for someone and they have not been healed. Maybe some of you have done precisely this. You've called the elders, the leaders of the church to come and pray with you And they've come and anointed you with oil and prayed, and yet your sickness has remained. Sometimes people are healed, sometimes they're not. That's our experience. Even just this week, some friends of mine lost their five-year-old son to cancer. We prayed for him. They prayed for him. The leaders of their church prayed for him. Friends and family up and down the country prayed for him. We even prayed as a church, some of you might remember, in one of our church prayer meetings for him. But he wasn't healed. 
yet a few years ago, we prayed for the daughter of an unbelieving friend, someone in the church uh, who had a tumour on the brain. This, this Miraculously, the tumour shrank and disappeared. The family, witnessing this miracle in part, then came to faith. And now that girl is healthy and growing and flourishing. Why one and not the other? I'm sure many of you would be able to relate similar stories. And with the background of that experience, we read these verses and James seems to be saying the prayer of a righteous person, the prayer offered up in faith will heal you. And what are we supposed to do with that? Because on the surface it reads like if we don't see healing, it's because we've done something wrong. Maybe we have unconfessed sin or, or we lack faith when we pray or we're just not righteous enough. And now you're like, man, like if only we could find a righteous person to come and pray. <laughs> it seems like neither us nor our friends are good enough. Well, let me give you a spoiler alert now. For a number of reasons, I don't believe that's what James is really teaching here. And so I just want to take that weight of condemnation that you might be feeling uh, off your shoulders for the times that you've prayed and someone wasn't healed. And you can stop assuming that your friends who weren't healed uh, are harboring secret sin uh, and judging them for that. You can uh, take that off. Because if you think about it, if that's really what James meant, do you think we'd have accounts of key leaders in the early church staying sick? I mean, of course not. That would be insane. They would just all follow this formula and they would be well. Yet we do. The Apostle Paul had some kind of ailment that he asked God to take away from him, but yet God never did. Paul died with that thorn in the flesh as he speaks about it. But God gave him insight to see that actually this thorn in the flesh was being used for his good. It was being used to grow him in humility. We read that Timothy was unwell and, and Paul wrote to him encouraging him to use medicine for his sickness. We read in 2 Timothy 4 that actually Paul had to leave one of his colleagues, a man called Trophimus. He had to leave him behind at Miletus because he was too ill to travel. Well, why didn't they just pray the prayer of faith and, and anoint with oil? And <laughs> Surely... In Philippians 2, we read that another of Paul's good friends, Epaphroditus, was ill, ill near to death, causing Paul great distress. And yet at the same time, we read numerous accounts of God healing people in Scripture. So there is no doubt that God does heal and that God can heal. But it's also clear from Scripture that he doesn't always and when he doesn't it's not 
necessarily because of a lack of faith or because someone is living in unrepentant sin. In fact, like Paul, sometimes it's because he wants to use it to accomplish something of worth and eternal value in someone. And this is one of the consistent themes James introduced in his letter in chapter 1, that we're to ensure, endure difficulties because God can use them to bring about his purpose in our lives. And so that being the case, what is James teaching here? Who is James encouraging to do what, when, and, and to what end? Well, let's break it down. Ill people, <laughs> people who are sick, James says, should call the elders, local church leaders, to come and pray for them when they're sick. So far, so good, right? We understand that bit. That's okay. If you're sick, <laughs> James encourages you, call your church leaders to come and pray with you. The elders, as they come, are to anoint the person with oil. Hmm. Now, this is where it gets slightly more tricky. <laughs> and this verse has been a source of debate between scholars there are only a couple of other references in the New Testament to the use of oil, which makes it a little trickier to understand what James is advocating here. One is the parable of the Good Samaritan told by Jesus, where the Good Samaritan, after bandaging the injured man's wounds, treats him with oil and wine. And the other is when Jesus sent out the 12 disciples and we read in Mark 6, 13 that they anointed the sick with oil. Well, one option in understanding what James means is actually that oil was used medicinally in ancient times. We have texts outside of the Bible from the same kind of period that would say oil was used medicinally. Now, maybe you're an essential oils enthusiast armed at home with your diffusers, and right now you're like, yeah, preach it, James, come on. Get that oily goodness. <laughs> and it's possible. It's possible that James was effectively encouraging people to invite the elders to come and treat their illness with oil for medicinal purposes to administer medicine and to pray. That's possible. The other option, if you zoom out and look at the, the whole of Scripture, and you look at the Old Testament use of anointing with oil, then we see that oil is symbolic of the Spirit of God. It was used in the Old Testament as, as a, a way of marking people out for special attention, of, of setting them apart for specific purpose. It was used as a sign and a symbol that God was with them. And I think this second is the more likely option in James's encouragement, although I actually don't think it matters hugely. I'm not going to fight you over it. Because the oil was to be administered in the name of the Lord. 
And I think that's the most significant part about the oil. It's, the point is that it was to bring comfort in the name of the Lord that the knowledge that in their suffering and sickness, God was with them and cared for them. And that's why I think the, the latter, the, the same as the Old Testament use of oil is more likely in this scenario. It was this, as they anointed with oil in the name of the Lord, it was a way of encouraging that person that God knows, he sees, he cares about your condition. The oil actually isn't so much what matters as the reminder that God cares. And actually here, the main act, as we read on, that makes the difference is not the oil, <laughs> medicinal or otherwise, but prayer. James continues, we read from verse 15, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. The prayer offered in faith is what makes the difference here and we're going to get to that in a moment and seek to understand what is this prayer of faith or prayer offered in faith it's more literally translated the prayer of faith rather than a prayer offered in faith but James says it's effective it results in them being healed and what's more it sees their sins forgiven and that's where we're going to start before we get to what the prayer of faith is, is why does James bring sin into the equation, saying their sins are forgiven? Well, it's because the Bible teaches that sin is sometimes the cause of sickness. It's important that we understand that is a sometimes, not always. In 1 Corinthians 11 People were getting sick when taking communion because of unconfessed sin, an unrepentant sin. In Mark 2, Jesus heals a, a paralytic man saying to him, your sins are forgiven, and the man is healed. And when he heals the man at the pool of Bethesda in John 5, he says to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. But, <laughs> equally in John 9, when Jesus encounters a man born blind, people assume sin is the reason he's ill, and they say, whose sin made this man ill? Was it his or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. <laughs> neither. <laughs> this isn't because of sin. So sometimes the cause of sickness is sin in people's lives and a key aspect of freedom from sickness then is confession of sin and finding forgiveness. James links these things together for us in verse 16 when he writes, therefore, so because of that, because the prayer of faith makes you well and you forgive from sin, therefore, in light of that, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Confession is significant. 
And actually not just because it might be part of finding physical healing, but because it's definitely part of finding forgiveness and right standing before God, which brings lasting freedom. Confession, though, requires humility, doesn't it? It's not easy. It means admitting we've done something wrong. Actually, confession feels risky. If we confess to someone else, you know, what if they reject me? What if they think less of me because I've done that? What if they don't want to be my friend anymore? If they knew that about me? One of the devil's best strategies to keep you struggling with sin in your life in a habitual and ongoing way is to play to your pride. To get you thinking things like, well, they they don't need to know. I I don't need to tell them. I can deal with it. Just me. Um, I I can share it. Just me and God. I don't need uh, anyone else's help in this. Uh, You know, it it won't happen again. I've got it under control, really. (laughs) And maybe... (laughs) If you are struggling with an area of ongoing habitual sin in your life and you're telling yourself that, I guess I want to ask, like, oh, really? (laughs) Like, you've got it under control, have you? And how long have you been struggling with that? Like, oh, really? You see, the temptation to keep hidden and bury sin and fool yourself that you have it under control and you won't do it again is huge and it is devastating. It's foolish. Confession is important. You need to bring it out into the light where you can find forgiveness. And when you do, a few things happen. The first is that you become accountable. You have someone else who's going to pray for you and stand with you and encourage you in the light. And significantly, the devil loses that fear of shame hold over you. When you have nothing to hide, that's actually incredibly liberating. When you can genuinely live in a way where you're not worrying that someone might find out about that thing, that someone might uncover that thing, that's very freeing to not live like that. You know, sin also robs us of intimacy with God. And intimacy with God is vital for effective prayer because it means knowing God's heart and being subject to God's will. Confession is important. The prayer of a righteous person, James says, is effective, but the prayer of a righteous person is the prayer of someone who has repented of their sin and through Christ Jesus has found forgiveness. And so James says, Confess your sins. Make yourself accountable to one another. Get right with God and pray for one another. See what happens. But what about the prayer of faith? We're going to get back to that. What is this prayer? I mean, is it like some kind of magic formula? We say that and, and it all gets sorted? <laughs> no. 
Actually, James's use of Elijah in this passage for us as an illustration is so, so helpful in understanding what he means and in bringing clarity to this point. Let's read. He says, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Here, Elijah is a model of a righteous person who prayed a prayer of faith. He prayed earnestly that God would do something completely incredible, and it happened. And James says Elijah wasn't special, like he didn't have superpowers or something. He was a man just like us. Now, (laughs) when we first read this, this could look like a validation of the type of kind of name it and claim it, prosperity gospel, whatever I ask for, God's going to do for me. But it only looks like that if we don't take the time to check out what actually happened. James's first readers were, were Jews. <laughs> they knew the Old Testament scriptures inside out. They were well versed. They knew this story. They knew the background. They knew what had happened. And so when James said this, they had a level of understanding that many of us simply don't. You see, if we look at the story, we'll actually see that Elijah understood God's heart. And he discerned God's will. And so when he prayed, he prayed in line with the word of God. He lined himself and his prayers up with God's will revealed in God's word. And God answered See, Elijah knew the warning that God had given his people, the Israelites, that we have recorded for us in Deuteronomy 11. God warned his people that if they turned away from him and began to worship false idols, he would do something. We read Deuteronomy 11, 16 and 17. Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce that there would be a drought. Elijah knew that God had spoken this to his people and knowing God had spoken it, God had already said he'd do it. Elijah prayed fervently, Lord, your people have turned away from you in rebellion and they're worshipping false gods. Would you do as you've said? Would you shut up the heavens? Would you stop the rain and cause drought to come? He didn't just know what God had said he'd do and go, yeah, cool. Well, God, you can do it if you say you're going to do it. It wasn't like a shoulder shrug, kind of let go and let God, oh, well, yeah, no, if that's God's will, he'll make it happen. Elijah knew God had promised this and he fervently and passionately prayed, Lord, would you do as you've said you'll do? And then later in 1 Kings 18, we read that God told him he would send the rain. And so Elijah prayed in line with God's word and the rains came and the drought ended. 
pray, Lord, do it like you said you will. Make no mistake, Elijah's prayer here mattered. But it was God's plan that came to fruition. Elijah didn't just like, decide it would be a good idea. He wasn't kind of fed up with the people. and like, well, I'll show them. I'll, oh, this is a good idea. I'm going to pray for drought and that's what will happen. That's my idea. Yeah, come on. No, he knew the will of God and he prayed fervently into that. He had God's word that it would happen and so he prayed passionately that God would do what he had said he would do. This is a prayer of faith that can't fail. And God invites us to partner with him in prayer. He initiates it. And he accomplishes it. But in the gap between those two things, he invites us to join in his work and prayer and faith that he will do what he said he will do. Prayers in line with God's will and God's word never fail. So the righteous person whose prayers are effective... (laughs) the prayer offered up in faith, then actually is about being people who in response to the grace of God, submit themselves to the will of God, recognize his ways and his wisdom, surrender to him and whose prayers consequently line up with the will of God. That we're praying, God, your will be done in this situation. Now let's be clear, God can and God does heal. Have no doubt about that. And so we want to anoint with oil, remember that God is present and that he cares, and we want to pray with certainty that if it's his will, he will heal. We pray full of faith, unshakable in our conviction that God can do it. But we also rest in the knowledge that God is good and God is sovereign. And it's not actually always his will to heal. That our sickness, along with other suffering, can serve a purpose in our lives here and now. That God understands and sees and that we do not. And yet we look forward to the day when all sickness will be no more. See, our ultimate hope when we pray for the sick is not temporary release, uh, not, not temporary physical relief, but actually our great hope is in eternal freedom from sin and its effects. When Christ returns and brings about the new heavens and the new earth, whatever pain we have endured will be removed. The shackles of sickness will be cast off and we will be forever free with him. That's our great hope when we pray. But that doesn't make it easy when we don't see people healed. And it doesn't make light of suffering or the experience of loss. But it does help us to process for my friends who lost their son this week. It's not easy or comfortable. The pain is real. And they will wrestle with the questions, why? So will we.
But we do know that God is good. And their testimony in the midst of this pain and sorrow is that God is a sure and certain source of comfort as they grieve and that the eternal hope they have in Christ outweighs this present grief. So I want to encourage you as James draws this letter near to its conclusion. Guys, let's be those who are determined to pray when we're in trouble, to pray when we're happy, to pray for the sick, believing that God can and does heal, but that even when he doesn't, he's still good and faithful and sovereign. Let's be those who take sin seriously and humble ourselves in confession and repentance. Let's pray that God would draw many to himself and he would use us to see that happen in the places that he's put us And let's pray a prayer of faith for Christ's return. He's promised that he's coming back. He's promised that he's coming to wipe away every tear from every eye. He's promised that he's returning to make all things new, that there would be no more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow, that we would be in perfect intimacy in his presence forever he's promised he will come and so the prayer of faith that we can pray with confidence is come lord jesus it might not be today it might not be tomorrow but that's a prayer that will definitely be answered more gloriously than you could possibly imagine And we want to do it all to the glory and praise of God.